Chapter Ten of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Ten Our Base of Operations. Some two hours after my conversation with Blake, I noted a small shore-boat making for us, and an inspection through glasses soon revealed to me the forms of my stock-broking friends. I hastily informed the skipper, and he came on deck in time to be there when they came alongside. "'We wish to see the captain,' the red-headed one cried, as soon as they were within hail. "'I am the captain,' replied Blake politely. "'What can I do for you?' "'Oh, we'll get on the ship and tell you presently.' The remark was off-hand enough, and doubtless due to their noticing Blake's war-worn uniform. We were certainly, all of us, a disreputable lot to look at. War service in a destroyer is bad for clothes. The skipper allowed them to come on board and down into the wardroom, where they sat down and soon made themselves at home. "'My name is Green.' said the red-headed one, patronizingly, as I thought. "'And my friend here is called Fergus, a very well-known man of the city, very well-known. Indeed, I may say we are both men of substance there, commanding as we do a large amount of capital.' "'My name is Blake, and my friend here is called Bovary,' replied the skipper. I believe he was half inclined to add, "'Very well-known on board the rattlesnake,' but checked himself." "'Blake,' remarked Mr. Fergus, "'I seem to know the name. Had a clerk of that name once. Very smart fellow. Any relation?' "'I'm afraid I haven't the honor. Blake answered with a slight cough. "'Well, <clears throat> what do you want of me? My time just now is rather occupied, so if you will kindly state your business, it will be a convenience,' he continued. "'Ah, yes,' said Green. "'Just so.' Well, the fact of the matter is that my friend Mr. Fergus and myself are much incommoded by the fashion in which you have destroyed the telegraph here, which, you know, is public property. However, we are willing to believe that you did it with some reason that may explain it satisfactorily, quite satisfactorily, so if you can see your way to just running us over to Glasgow or Ardresson at your earliest convenience, well, we will promise that you will get into no trouble over it on our account. "'Well, if you want to go over to Glasgow, why don't you go?' asked the skipper, with an assumption of innocence that amused me mightily. "'Go? Why, because we can't, that's why. You appear to have stolen—bought, uh, I mean—all the boats in the place, which was a clever move, very clever, and I'm sure we admire it. However, you can name your own terms, you know.' I expected to see Blake turn purple with rage, but he controlled himself well. "'I don't quite follow you,' he said. "'But I'm afraid it will be quite three weeks before you can leave Aaron.' "'You may as well out with it, Green,' put in Mr. Fergus. "'The fact is, Mr. Blake, you're one too many for us. However, you've got your exclusive information, and have, of course, sold accordingly ere this. But—' It's a little hard that you should keep us from it, too. 
It doesn't make any odds to you, you know.' "'Not the slightest,' was the reply. "'However, I'm quite sure that you won't be able to leave Lamlash for quite three weeks or more. Moreover, any attempt to leave the island would result in your getting shot. Good day.' "'You're an unprincipled scoundrel, that's what you are,' cried Green, completely losing his temper. "'And by heaven I'll be even with you yet. The country hasn't got to quite such a state that a man can steal boats, destroy government property, and threaten murder, actually murder, with impunity. This from a public servant, who runs away from his fleet in order to rig the money market. Huh! They may well say the country is going to the devil, they may.' But here, Fergus, who seemed the more level-headed of the two, interrupted him. "'Don't be a fool, Green. You'll be getting chucked overboard or something of that sort if you don't take care,' he added in a half-aside. Blake and I burst out laughing. We really couldn't help it. I'm not sure that they wouldn't have preferred us to be indignant. But the whole thing was such an absurd farce. It was impossible to get angry about it or treat it seriously.' Bidding us a stiff good day, they went off, and we saw no more of them for a while. "'Dash those idiots!' said Blake, when his merriment had subsided. "'It's all very well to laugh at them, as we've got them boxed up in the island. But all the same, they'd smash up all our plans for the sake of their infernal stocks and shares, if they got but half a chance. However, since they can't—' Let them sit and curse us all day long, if it pleases them. The next day, the third after our arrival, smoke was visible on the horizon beyond King's Cross, and by and by the Niger, with two torpedo boats in tow, came into harbour. In the course of the next day or so, we were joined by several more catchers, destroyers, and torpedo boats, all of which had deserted as soon as practicable after the receipt of Blake's telegrams and one of the destroyers, the Hornet, brought a welcome addition in the shape of the collier Lily, which it had been her duty to escort somewhere or other. The indignation of Captain Higgs of the Lily had at first been intense, but later, on learning what was in the wind, he had come to, like the patriotic Briton that he was, and refused to take any compensation for the great inconvenience Blake's plan compelled him to undergo. Although we were safe at Lamlash, so far as news of our whereabouts being carried thence was concerned, we were daily exposed to the danger of discovery by a hostile cruiser, or even by an English one not in the secret. To minimize this danger, our ships were disguised as much as possible, and anchored in very irregular fashion. But our skipper, or commodore as I should now call him, was anxious to mine the entrances to the harbour which would guard us safely from any foe, and, better still, enable us to save coal by drawing fires. Hitherto we had lain with steam up, and there seemed little prospect of our being able to discontinue it, for we needed the explosive in our torpedoes for its own work, and such gunpowder as we were able to collect ashore was totally insufficient for our purposes. We got what protection we could by putting our torpedo-boats at the entrances, but there was always the risk that a cruiser, seeing them, would either be able to sink them before they could get within striking distance, or else turn tail and be off to get her friends the moment she spotted them. 
and the enemy were well able to bring up enough ships to shut us in altogether had they wished to. Altogether we were at our wits' end, and then it was that Captain Higgs proved himself of inestimable service. Running over in his collier to Glasgow, where he was well known, he managed somehow to obtain a quantity of dynamite and blasting powder, as well as a few other things we needed. Returning by a roundabout course, so as to avoid suspicion, he brought the news that the city was in a panic. Business was practically suspended. Visits from enemy's cruisers were hourly expected. He also brought us newspapers, wherefrom we learned how a French army corps had landed on the south coast, and taking Portsmouth in the rear, transformed it into a naval and military base for further operations, and all the other events that I need not recapitulate here. Captain Higgs did us another service, too, by giving out to the Glasgow folk that a French cruiser had been at Lamlash and bombarded the place. This explained the destruction of telegraphic communication, and prevented any attempt to repair it, for fear the enemy was still lying there. The dynamite was gladly welcomed by Blake, and soon we had electrically fitted mines at both ends of Holy Island, worked from a camera obscura situated on the top of the hill, and after this we felt safer. We were none too soon with our mines, for, ere we had everything complete, a French cruiser, making in the direction of Glasgow, headed for our harbour. Training our guns and torpedo tubes in her direction, we waited breathlessly for results. She seemed in no hurry, whatever she was at, and after steaming to within a few yards of our outermost mines, withdrew again. Had anything suspicious been noted, and was she going off to alarm her consorts? After a wait that seemed to last for hours, but cannot really have been very long, back she came again, steaming slowly and cautiously. Lieutenant Orchardston, who had charge of the minefield, eagerly watching the plate of our extempore camera obscura, saw the pictured warship pass phantom-like over one of the circles marked thereon to indicate the radius of destruction, and as she did so, he pressed a button. A huge column of water enveloped the enemy. With it came a wave that rolled all our vessels till the sea broke over their decks, and when we looked again— there was nothing but troubled water left where the cruiser had been. The dasher, which alone of us had steam up, went out to the spot, but no survivors were found. The annihilation of the enemy had been as complete as it had been instantaneous. End of chapter